from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, we'll be joined by Stanley Greenspan and William Forstchen. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the role of parenting is rarely, if ever, easy and can be especially challenging with children who have Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, otherwise known as ADHD. Often the first course of action for many parents is to turn to a pill, but in fact for many children, other options may be much more beneficial. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Dr. Stanley Greenspan. Dr. Greenspan is the clinical professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at George Washington University Medical School and president of the Interdisciplinary Council on Developmental and Learning Disorders. Author of numerous books and articles, including Engaging Autism and The Challenging Child, his newest release, co-authored with Jacob Greenspan, is entitled Overcoming ADHD, Helping Your Child Become Calm, Engaged, and Focused Without a Pill. And he explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Greenspan, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and this is really a very fascinating book. For those people who are not well aware of what is ADHD, if you could explain that to them. Well, simply a difficulty with paying attention, but the more challenging part of it is the reasons for it. And current approaches focus on the symptoms, just a child fidgety, a child moving around a lot, a child looking out the window at school, a child not following directions, a child simply not being attentive. What we need to do and what the book, Overcoming ADHD, does, it shows what the underlying reasons are. That each child has a different reason in terms of the way their nervous system works for being inattentive. For one child, for example, they may be oversensitive to sound, so they get distracted. They look left, up, right, and down all the which way, but not at the person speaking and therefore don't necessarily listen. Uh, Another child may be craving lots of sensations, including sounds. So they're on the go all the time, seeking out more. They're trying to get more sensations into their system. Another child may be underreactive, where they're in their own little world, daydreaming all the time. Now, for each child, we have a different series of exercises in the book that's described that will help parents and kids have fun and at the same time strengthen this capacity. The difference is that this approach is an approach that we develop from the bottom up, not from the top down. In other words, by understanding how the capacity to pay attention develops how listening and looking and understanding and most importantly thinking contributes 
Uh, so we show how to strengthen all of these. So with an approach like this, you have a child who grows into an adult who's not only stronger in terms of their attentive ability, but you have an individual who's stronger emotionally and socially and also feels better about themselves. No negative side effects. But this requires a full evaluation by a very well-trained individual who knows this approach. That's why I wrote the book. Do you think it's just easier then for psychologists and psychiatrists to resort to a pill? It's most easier for everyone in our society to resort to this, quote, simple way, to a pill. But there are no magic bullets, as they say, no magic solutions. We have to strengthen the core capacities that help build a strong individual. We do this from the time a child is a baby, because we show in the book how to do it as a child is developing, as well as for an older child or a teenager or an adult. The earlier we do it as an individual is developing, the more it helps them do well all the time, and the stronger they are as an individual, and often the better they are at what they do, and the happier they are. So individuals like yourself who are interviewing are better interviewers if either we're blessed at birth with strong capacities in all the areas that contribute, such as comprehending sound and sights and movement and communicating and thinking had individuals, hopefully your family, who really almost automatically worked with you in further strengthening these already strong capacities. That's the best, and the book will show you how to do that as well. But it's a, it's a new way of thinking about attention and Human development is complex, and we can't handle it in overly simplified ways. If not, we'll have a society of individuals who are not nearly what they could be. So, in a sense, it's uh, trying to identify certain goals or areas in a child's development that can be strengthened and reinforced. Exactly. Exactly. Both at home, teachers, with all those who interact with the child a great deal. In your book, you talk about a lot of different areas that can be focused on, for example, helping a child plan and sequence actions and building self-confidence, improving motor function. Which of these do you think is really um, the most important that you found in, in your studies? Well, the most important area is when we talk about our learning tree model to refer to in the tree trunk, which we use metaphorically, and that is the different levels of thinking. And individuals who's a good thinker, who's a reflective thinker, for example, a 12-year-old child who's a reflective thinker, can figure out often how to pay attention, even if it's hard for them. And they can cooperate and collaborate, and they're better at, at everything. The bottom line is we have to show our parents and our educators how to strengthen thinking, not just memory, because memory alone doesn't do it. It just simply doesn't, doesn't work. And number two, not only how to strengthen thinking, but we have to strengthen the ability to listen, 
to understand what you see. Understanding what you see is not as easy as it seems. Some people are better at looking at house and figuring out what all three sides look like or turning it around, upside down in their minds and describing it to you. The human body and the human mind has enormous potential if we train it properly. And by training it properly, we can have fun and we can become better individuals at the same time. Why do you think that this particular view is not the general way of treating ADHD? Well, most of it, new discoveries in terms of our own research on understanding human development and how these systems develop. Another is to see how they contribute to the ability to attention. And third is to take all the knowledge we now have from all our colleagues around the world, enormous amount, while we have much more to still learn about sight, sound, and movement, and thinking. But we know enough now to put together a comprehensive approach for treating all kinds of problems, attention being one of them, but others as well. So we, we apply this to many areas, but attention is one of the most important because in the United States, it's estimated 8% of children are diagnosed with ADHD, and everybody is very, very concerned about the amount of kids who are mother quote, stimulant medication, which has all kinds of side effects. For some kids, they may need medication also. And if they do, I recommend it. But that's only about one in 10, I find, of the children who are sent to me already on medication. And many of them on fairly high doses and some on more than one, which we, we call, <laughs> the field calls polypharmacy. And that gets us, that's gotten into, to us into real hot water in recent years. So we have to be very, very cautious about the current approaches. Yes, they are easier, and they, but also the reason for the new approach I'm recommending is because we now know how to do it, and we've worked with enough children that I'm confident our colleagues and children and their parents will all find it helpful. When, when do you think it is time to turn to a pill? Well, it's not that it's time to turn. You never just work with a pill alone. Every child who needs to have medication also needs to be a good reason. And you need to be doing this approach and then adding medication on if it's necessary. And when it is necessary, it's often much less medication is necessary, and therefore we get less side effects if we're strengthening the child's system at the same time. Given the new research that exists right now regarding ATHT, what advice do you have to give to parents and educators? Well, to basically be flexible and be willing to work with them in non-memory-based ways to figure out, because they often know if they ask themselves the questions, where is the child strong? Where is the child weak? What does the child do easily? How is their fine motor, i.e., for example, how they write? How easy is it for them to do fine movements of their fingers? How good are they with their gross motor, i.e., sports and dance? How much rhythm do they have? How good are they in music? 
physically, that's important as well. And then we go, you go through each of the ways we get information from sounds, from sights, from touch, from smell, from sensing our own movement, from comprehending what we read, comprehending what we see, and so forth. So when we do all that, plus also understand the child's emotional life and the family's emotional life, and we do a comprehensive evaluation, we construct a program for a child, and that program turns out to strengthen the whole family and also be a lot of fun for both the child and the parents or other family members or helpers who come in and work with the child. And the key is that we'll, if we do this, we'll have a stronger society because we'll have stronger individuals and we'll have the leaders of tomorrow that we need. In, indeed, indeed. Uh, maybe just to close, if you have maybe resources where parents and educators can go to learn more about the new methodologies. Well, first, the resources are, number one, overcoming ADHD, <laughs> because reading the book will give you a beginning groundwork and will get you, get you started. We give enough case examples or enough illustrations in the book parent can begin to work with their child and have fun and the child will maybe not immediately look forward to it because anything new can be a little bit frightening and a parent facing the reality that the child needs to strengthen parts of their nervous system uh, it can be a little bit scary and maybe parent or family or you know difficulties that interfere and get in the way and the child may be so uh, ingrained in avoiding things that anything that hits a problem is something they want to um, run away from so they don't make it easy to work, you know, to entice them at, at first. But when you do entice them successfully, and all children have their ways by just observing them and knowing them and knowing what uh, gives them satisfaction and pleasure, and by strengthening your relationship with your child, by spending more time with your child, by doing that, you're off and running. That's what's critical here. All right. Well, uh, the new book is called Overcoming ADHD, Helping Your Child Become Calm, Engaged, and Focused Without a Pill. Dr. Stanley Greenspan, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Okay. Well, thank you for having me, and wish you good luck, and all the families that listen to you, good luck, and all the families that have children with attentional difficulties or any other learning challenge, I want to wish them good luck as they begin understanding this model and begin applying its principles to their child. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And you were just listening to Stanley Greenspan discussing overcoming ADHD. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, William Forston discussing one second after. So stay tuned.
welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, the rapid advances in electronic technology have enabled both those entrusted to protect our security and those poised to threaten it. But what happens if those electronic devices are suddenly rendered useless? Such a scenario could occur following the detonation of an electromagnetic pulse. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Dr. William R. Forstian. Dr. Forstian is a faculty fellow and professor of history at Montreal College, author of over 40 books, including the New York Times bestsellers Gettysburg and Pearl Harbor. His newest release, One Second After, is a fascinating depiction of the possible results following the detonation of an electromagnetic pulse. Dr. Forstian, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show great to be with you. A real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. And I think this is really a very fascinating book. Tell us first, uh, what exactly is an electromagnetic pulse? Well, even before I start to describe it, if it sounds sci-fi to some of your listeners, after our show is over, Google up Congressional Commission Report on EMP. That's a report from 2004, 2008. Give you a lot of good hard science. Or go to website one second after, which can link you into hard science. EMP is shorthand for electromagnetic pulse. It is a byproduct of the detonation of a nuclear weapon. Now, if a nuclear weapon is detonated about 200 miles up above the center of the United States, when that detonation hits, it sets up an electrostatic discharge that goes through the atmosphere, feeds in through our electrical grid, and one second later, the entire power system of the United States could very well be knocked offline. Oh, that's incredible. Terrifying. Pretty much rendering the entire electronic grid uh, useless. Uh, I was at a conference in Niagara back in September uh, with about 1,000 people there, some top experts. One projection was that four years after such an event, 80% of our generating capacity would still be offline. Why? America no longer manufactures its own replacement parts for major generating systems. They mm -hmm. come from overseas. Mm -hmm. and, and without those parts, you couldn't get these uh, systems back online. Yeah, it's trying to kickstart the whole thing back up is almost impossible. Hmm. And the congressional study, the 2004 report, here's the grim number. Let's get down to about you and me. 90% of all Americans might very well die within a year to 18 months after such an event. And, and yeah. why is that? Well, where exactly are you located right now? We are in Chicago. Okay, where do you get your water from? Presumably in Lake Michigan. <laughs> used to live there. What? <laughs> no, I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, okay, well, you, you see where I'm leading already. Uh -huh. How does the water get to, to your house? Hmm. How does the sewerage, where does it go? Remember, hmm. uh, Chicago had that great typhoid epidemic in the 1880s. I think it killed like 50,000 people. Mm -hmm. Within a matter of days, you're going to see a complete breakdown of sanitation, water supply, health, gastrointestinal illnesses. Average community only has two to three weeks worth of food on hand. If your transportation grid's down, where does the food come from? Hey, Chicago gets a nice blizzard. Suppose the AMP event happens just before that. How many people will freeze to death in 24 hours? Mm. You see the cascading series of events, including civil breakdown. Mm. And why is it so hard to just to restart the system once it's down? Because the entire grid system built the most remarkable system in the history of humanity, but it is very complex, infinitely delicate. All the millions of little microchips now that run all the various relays that feed the power distribution country, they short out. Where do you start replacing them? I saw some photo, high-speed photos taken of what happened with major EMP event hitting our high-tension lines, you know, those big things atop the aluminum towers. Mm -hmm. The ceramic insulators would explode from the overload. Mm. In other words, you have to literally wire a fair part of the country on top of it. You want to really get into some scary conversations, get a guy on who works at a nuclear power plant, 
about the difficulty of trying to cold start it after only one to two weeks. You said it's been studied for several years now by the government, right? Well, it's been known about since 1962. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can go back to another thing to look up on the Internet, starfish prime. This was a test we did in 1962 where we detonated a nuclear weapon over the Pacific. 500 miles away, the power systems in Hawaii were blowing out. That was sort of the oh-my-God moment. The Russians did it a week or two later in something called Soviet Test 184. So both we and the Soviets were aware of it back in the 60s. For me, personally, the scary thing now is when you have a country like Iran where the leader is saying that they will rain a nuclear death on America and they only have one to three nuclear weapons, what's the biggest bang for the buck? Mm-hmm. Do an EMP on us, first strike. Is this part of the uh, calculations for those in defense? Oh, you have a lot of people within the defense system, both civilian and military, who this is about their biggest concern. If we look back to the 1980s, under the Reagan administration, a lot of funding was being spent on hardening of infrastructure and military equipment. The so-called peace dividend, that's gone by the wayside. Hmm. There are a lot of very anxious people today regarding the threat of EMP and feel it is one of the biggest potential military threats to the United States. But nobody's talking about it. Sounds sci-fi, doesn't it? It does. We know how conservative bureaucracies can be in terms of somebody walking and saying, hey, guys, EMP is an issue. And it's like, were you watching the last episode of Star Trek or what? And then the other problem is Hollywood gets it all wrong. Hmm. In fact, Bill Knight, a science guy, actually did a little program on that called uh, How Hollywood Gets It Wrong. You mentioned EMP and said, hey, wasn't that Notions of 11 and the power turned on 30 seconds later? Mm-hmm. It's a hard one to sell. Right. If it's a hard measure to sell, then uh, what the risk, do you think, of a potential strike? Well, hey, I'll make your day worse. Go back and look at the NASA-NOAA reports that came out in May. NASA and NOAA projecting significant solar storm activity increase across the next five years. Mm-hmm. It's called the Carrington event, based on something that happened in the 1800s. A major solar storm can do the identical thing to us. So it's not just military. It's also a natural environmental event. One of the top experts on that side said, ask me to predict a military event. I can't tell you for sure. Ask me to predict a solar event in our lifetime, almost 100%. Wow. Given the fact that it's uh, very likely, uh, what should people be doing, really? Well, there's three or four things. One, two great heroes in this issue are Congressman Roscoe Bartlett, conservative Republican out of Maryland, Congressman Benny Thompson, liberal Democrat out of Mississippi. With all the other bills I know we're thinking about today and everything else, well, these two guys have shaken hands and have co-authored House Bill 2195. 2195. That is to start hardening our infrastructure, particularly what's called the smart grid. And then let's go all the way to the other end of the, the spectrum. Every family should have an emergency preparedness plan in place no matter where they live. Be able to get by on your own for several weeks or more or a month or two. Hey, what did Katrina teach us? Don't wait for the feds. So, so the book itself is a novel, mm-hmm. which is detailed a scenario one second after an EMP. Why did you decide to write it in this particular format? Well, it goes back to close friends with Newt Gingrich, and we've written some books together, and it was about five years back. We were having dinner. Joining us for dinner was Captain Bill Sanders, who actually wrote the afterword for the book, mm-hmm. one of our military's top experts on EMP. At the end of that dinner conversation, Newt was like, you know, Bill, I think you should write a novel about this one to get the word out. Mm-hmm. But here's what really made me want to write the book. I went home. My daughter was just about 11 at the time, and 2 in the morning, Daddy goes to peek in on his little girl, make sure she's okay. I hadn't seen her in a week. And I bur- I'm not ashamed to admit, I burst into tears. Hmm. I'm looking at my girl, and I'm like, what kind of world is she going to live in? So I wrote it for her. 
sounds, I know it sounds a bit maudlin, but it's the truth. I wrote it because what can I do for my daughter? Mm-hmm. One of you tell us a little bit about the story that you have in the book. It's, it's, it's vaguely autobiographical in a way. Well, it's, it's about a college professor with two daughters. Mm-hmm. The electricity just turns off and never comes back on. Mm-hmm. Now, thank God my daughter is healthy. One of the two daughters in the novel is a diabetic. I draw on that from personal experience in that I've taught school for 30 years, started teaching middle school. I teach college now. I've lost students to various things. Mm-hmm. And watching a young child with a medical condition is, I don't even want to talk about it anymore because I'll get emotional. Hmm. How did you yourself become interested in this issue? Well, when I was in grad school, I was studying military history. That's when I first became aware of it. And I'm also a science fiction writer. 20, 25 years ago, I actually did write a Star Trek novel many years ago. So there was always that understanding of it. And then it was that dinner conversation with Newt and Captain Sanders that pushed me over the edge into, I've got to do this. And then some months later, I was sitting in a graduation ceremony looking at my kids who were graduating. And then I thought, I'm going to set this in my hometown around people I know. So all of the places described in the book are real. In fact, uh, I'm sitting looking out at the town right now, Black Mountain, North Carolina. And this is really a culmination of several years of research on your part. Uh, well, not constant research. <laughs> I was working on a couple of other things. But, yeah, a lot, a lot of research. And I'll tell you, the, the real gut knot for me was when I went to the first major conference about EMP after my novel came out, because sitting in there were these physicists, scientists, guys who have been working on this issue for decades. And they told me, basically, I got it right. Boy, that was an emotional moment for me as well. Mm. It's been optioned for a film. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's triggered a documentary related to the subject of EMP that will be aired in a couple of months. The trade paperback edition of the book just came out a couple weeks back, and it's someone like crazy. Mm. My main thing, though, is Congressman Roscoe Bartlett. When I talked to him for the first time about EMP, and he was like, Bill... EMP does not have a constituency. Help me build a constituency. So the heck with everything else about the success of the book. If this gets people interested in the subject and pushing the government to do something, then I feel like I've done something for my country, and you're helping to protect all our daughters. Mm. We're running slightly out of time here. What would you say is maybe a final take-home message for all those interested in EMP? When the show's over, if this sounds crazy, look it up. Start with Wikipedia and then go from there. And if you're not sobered after about an hour or two, well... Check your heart because you scared the living you know what out of you. <laughs> All right. Well, the new book is called One Second After. And uh, Dr. Fortune, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, hey, thanks. Uh, it's, a, it's a good show to be on. I really appreciate it. All right. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic short-circuited or grounded. So for the falling five individuals... The Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they've been short-circuited or if they're grounded, and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Forston, you ready to play the game? I'm ready to play the game. This is cool. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Person number one, short-circuited or grounded, the golfer, Tiger Woods. Short-circuited. <laughs> and... Ding! <laughs> so he might be grounded by his ex-pass for all eternity. <laughs> all right, well, uh, number two then, uh, short-circuited or grounded, it's the heiress, Paris Hilton. Oh, definitely short circuit. <laughs> There's a sitting half sprayed down in there somewhere. It just keeps circling around. It's like the goldfish, you know, the three-second thing. It does not compute. <laughs> I don't think many things have been computing in there for a while. <laughs> Number three is uh, the former commander in Iraq, uh, General Petraeus. 
definitely grounded. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a guy with both feet on the ground and a true patriot. All right. Number four is the quarterback Brett Favre. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if he's the guy that with the with the dogs, then I just say throw him to the dogs. But I don't know who he is. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, finally, number five, then. Short circuit or grounded, it's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Oh, I pass. Oh, maybe an astute move on your part there. <laughs> Considering who I work with, I better pass. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Fortune, I want to thank you for sticking around playing our game. I and, love it. <laughs> and, of course, again, talking about your, your fascinating new book, which is called One Second After. Thank you very much for your time. God bless it. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.